Hello, everyone, and welcome to United We Stand. I'm your host, Jim Feeney, and this show airs every week with, hopefully, insightful commentary about the world around us and how we build a stronger, more sustainable America. You can also find my podcast and blogs at www.jimfeeney.com and subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and Buzzsprout, and many other places. Of how life throws you curveballs. So it is, and I'm sitting here putting the finishing touches on my weekly editorial with the TV in the background, and I heard that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed on. In this epic time in our history, when the country seems so divided, we all need to take a deep breath and recognize a great American life. Justice Ginsburg was born Ruth Bader in Brooklyn, New York in 1933, of a Russian-Jewish emigrant father and a Jewish mother from Brooklyn. first taste of hardship came early when her mother died the day before her high school graduation. She went on to attend Cornell University where she met her husband, Martin Ginsburg, who she married a month after graduation in 1954. She gave birth to her first child a year later while working for the Social Security Administration as her husband was a new Army officer at Fort Sill in Oklahoma. In 1956, Ginsburg enrolled at Harvard Law School, where she was one of only nine women in a class of about 500 men. The dean of Harvard Law School reportedly invited all the female law students to dinner at his family home and asked the female law students, including Ginsburg, why are you at Harvard Law School taking the place of a man? The days when I went to law school, my entering class at Harvard was over 500 students, only nine were women. There was no anti-discrimination law, so employers were totally upfront in saying, um, we don't want any lady lawyers here, or we once hired a woman. She was dreadful. And how many men have you hired that didn't live up to your expectations for them? Throughout her long career, she was a trailblazing advocate for women's rights, starting with the American Civil Liberties Union, where she participated in over 300 gender discrimination cases by 1976. She ultimately argued six of those cases before the Supreme Court and won three of them. The role of women in the workplace owes much of its progress to Mrs. Ginsburg. In 1980, she was confirmed by the Senate as a justice on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. During her time as a judge on the D.C. Circuit, Mrs. Ginsburg often found consensus with her colleagues, including conservatives Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia. This earned her a reputation as a cautious jurist and a moderate. I, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, do solemnly swear. She was just the second woman to take that oath for the U.S. Supreme Court in 1993. Ruth Bader Ginsburg once said it was a lonely existence until two more joined. Now you're three. When do you think there will be enough? obvious when there are nine. <laughs> in 1993, President Clinton nominated her to the Supreme Court, and, he was, and she was confirmed by a 96-3 vote. Justice Ginsburg became a Supreme Court justice at the age of 60 and went on to have an incredible 27-year second career. Most people that age would be thinking about retirement. From that perspective, she's a role model for me as I start a second career myself at the age of 60. Justice Ginsburg's 27-year tenure on the Supreme Court can be best characterized as a solid liberal vote. 
She staunchly supported the details of the process and was well-respected by all of her colleagues. She also became a dear friend of Justice Antonin Scalia, who could not have been more diametrically opposed to her in judicial matters. They were both big fans of opera and frequently socialized with one another. In public, they enjoyed poking fun at each other. Scalia thought she was a lot of fun. Justices Scalia and Ginsburg stand as pillars for two opposing views of the Constitution. However, their ability to forge a relationship despite differences is certainly a model for our time. Very nice person. She likes opera. You know, what's not to like? (laughs) Except her views of the law, of course. (laughs) A pioneer for women's rights and a fixture in the liberal world frequently touted the importance of a living, breathing constitution. Scalia, on the other hand, was an originalist who believed the constitutional language was fixed. Now, you you, you say, uh, why shouldn't we follow, you know, the, uh, the unanimity of the world, of judges of the world? Why why are judges experts on these questions? What did I learn at Harvard Law School that gives me any more insight into whether there ought to be a right to assisted suicide or whether there ought to be a right to abortion? Any more insight than Joe Sixpack? Why, why, why Why do we think we give these questions to judges? It absolutely befuddles me. Judges have no special qualification for this. They get it only because they're operating under very vague, generalized treaties. That I guess they could say they're forced into it. But they're no experts on that on that subject. Now, I believe in natural law, but I believe that in in democratic political institutions, it's up to the people to decide what they think natural law demands. So you have political campaigns in in which people say, women have a natural right to abortion, fine. Say that in a political campaign and then put it to a vote. Because we all disagree on natural law. Why say whatever a bunch of judges think is the answer? That makes no sense in a democracy. In a 2015 forum at George Washington University, the Scalia-Ginsburg relationship was on full display. To my mind, no constitution is living unless it it is enduring. If it is subject to the whimsical change by five out of nine votes on the Supreme Court that decide it ought to mean something different, well, that's not a living constitution, Scalia said. Justice Ginsburg replied to remind him that those who built the constitution were white property-owning men. But even at their most confrontational, the justices remained even-keeled, showing that their bond came first. Ginsburg interrupted Scalia at one point with a gentle urging of, but that argument won't work, Nino, using the nickname Scalia reserved for his close friends and colleagues. Can you talk a bit about the place of the arts and humanities in a meaningful life? Why are they important to you? They are essential. Uh, Yes, opera is my passion. And can I tell them about an opera that was written by a law student a couple of years ago? It's called Scalia Ginsburg. (laughs) This is a very talented musician who had been a music major at Harvard and had an MA from Yale, and then decided that in his field, it would be helpful to know a little bit about the law. So he enrolled in law school, and he's taking constitutional law and reading these dual opinions, Ginsburg and Scalia, 
uh, Ginsburg for the majority, Scalia in dissent, Scalia in the majority, Ginsburg in dissent. And he decides this could make a very funny comic opera. Ginsburg mourned the loss of collegiality that, w- that was once part of Capitol Hill, stating at a 2017 lecture at Stanford University, I wish there was a way I could wave a magic wand and put it back when people respected each other and voted for the good of the country and not along party lines. Someday, there will be great representatives who will say, enough of this nonsense. I hope that day comes when I'm still alive. Well, Ruth, I could not agree more, but I'm sorry to say that it hasn't happened yet. From my view, there's still plenty of inconsistency in some of Justice Ginsburg's opinions, which are symptomatic of the old double standard modus operandi in politics. She broke Supreme Court tradition of not weighing in on politics in 2016, where she, and she drew criticism for this and later apologized for saying she feared for the country and the court if Donald Trump was elected. The 2017 Stanford lecture, she also stated that if I were queen, there would be no death penalty and that she would change the electoral college. The category of cases that has given me tremendous anxiety since my first day on the court are the death penalty cases. Because if I were a, if I were a queen, there would be no death penalty. Find her opposition to the death penalty is at odds with her staunch support for abortion. Despite the twisted definitions of human life in the Roe versus Wade decision, a fetus is a human life by any reasonable definition and common sense. Just ask any expectant mother who cherishes her pregnancy and takes any steps necessary to bring her baby into the world. Look at how hard science focuses on discovering other life in the universe. Last week, for example, scientists discovered phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. It's a chemical that's exclusively the result of biological processes on Earth. Scientists universally believe a simple one-celled organism found on another planet would be considered life. Regardless of which side of this debate you're on, it's preposterous to argue that a fetus is not life. My view is, regardless of whether you think prohibiting abortion is good or whether you think prohibiting abortion is bad, regardless of how you come out on that, my only point is... The Constitution does not say anything about it. It leaves it up to democratic choice. Some states prohibited it. Some states didn't. What Roe versus Wade Wade said was that uh, no state can prohibit it. That is simply not in the Constitution. It was one of those many things, most things in the world, left to democratic choice. On the other hand, the death penalty opponents cite the sanctity of life and the super rare chance that a convicted murderer might be actually innocent, the reasons not to administer capital punishment. Now, there's some truth to that, but our technology and DNA capabilities have changed the way that we are able to determine guilt or innocence. That's a big step forward. And capital punishment has been a linchpin of social justice in most countries for millennia. Like abortion, which still claimed over 620,000 lives in 2016, 36% of which are African-American babies, capital punishment should be rare. Thankfully, the number of people put to death and the number of abortions has been decreasing for some time. Still, despite her great advocacy for human rights, I found Justice Ginsburg's stances on abortion and capital punishment to be glaringly at odds with each other. 
Justice Ginsburg's disdain for the Electoral College is equally troubling, given that this is an explicit constitutional mechanism designed as part of our brilliant system of checks and balances. Changing it is supposed to require a constitutional amendment, but that doesn't seem to stop people who support big government who don't like checks and balances when it comes to their own power. Ginsburg was a tireless fighter for minority rights, so it's quite odd that she opposed those inconvenient constitutional checks that prevent tyranny of the majority and protect minority rights. However, many great leaders in our country's history were flawed. Many of our founders owned slaves. Franklin Roosevelt, JFK, Martin Luther King, and Bill Clinton were well-known skirt chasers. Mr. Clinton's comeuppance may finally arrive once this awful Jeffrey Epstein pedophile episode is fully exposed. Talk about a hypocrite. As great as Ruth Bader Ginsburg was, there was plenty of hypocrisy in her career as a Supreme Court justice, in my opinion. Still, she was a historic figure, and it is totally appropriate to invoke that ancient Jewish prayer, may your memory be a blessing. Justice Ginsburg's death could not have come at a more important point in U.S. history. Even before her passing, the 2020 election was being characterized as the most pivotal in our lifetime. Now, November 3rd, 2020 has become a presidential election, a Super Bowl, World Cup, and World Series all rolled into one. Democrats, who are already shouting that her replacement must wait until after the, after the election, still have heartburn over Senator Mitch McConnell's refusal to vote on President Obama's nominee Merrick Garland in 2016. They cry double standard, and they'd be mostly correct on that matter. Republicans cite the clear constitutional process that authorizes the president to nominate and the Senate to confirm or not confirm a nomination, regardless of how close this event is to an election. I can empathize a little with the position of the Democrats on waiting till after the election. After all, Ginsburg made this wish explicit to her family on her deathbed. I'm sure, though, that if the tables were switched and the Democrats held a majority in the Senate, the GOP would be calling to wait until after the election. And I think Democrats would ignore the GOP plea to wait and then vote on a nominee from their Democratic president. Despite the calls to wait, there's plenty of precedents of justices being appointed in an election year. On script, and just hours after the announcement of Ginsburg's death a few days ago, Mitch McConnell declared, President Trump's nominee will receive a vote on the floor of the United States Senate. Well, let the games begin. Fortunately for them, there isn't much Democrats can do to stop President Trump from nominating someone and the GOP Senate from confirming the nominee quickly if they choose. Former Democrat Majority Leader Harry Reid and the Democrats paved the way with their ill-advised elimination of the filibuster for lower court judicial appointments in 2013. Uh, politics being a game of power, and what goes around comes around, Mitch McConnell and the GOP majority then eliminated the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in 2017. In response to the likely outcome of a nominee vote before the election, Democrat Senate veteran Ed Markey said this on his Twitter feed a couple days ago. Mitch McConnell set the precedent, Markey said. No Supreme Court vacancies filled in an election year. If he violates it, when Democrats control the Senate in the next Congress, we must abolish the filibuster and expand the Supreme Court. That's breathtaking. Then there is Democrat vice presidential candidate Kamala Harris, who supports expanding the court in an interview on August 12, 2020, before Justice Ginsburg died. 
If you read my last week's blog or listen to the podcast, American Pulp Fiction, you'd know that the Democrats are planning to use court packing and several other cynical strategies to guarantee Democrat rule in all branches of federal power for years to come. This includes declaring Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico new states with senators and congressional representatives who will most certainly be Democrats. Now, I'm sure all of you are thinking, you can't do that. Well, you'd be wrong. The Constitution doesn't limit the ability of Congress in either of these areas. In fact, the admission to the Union Clause of the Constitution found in Article 4 authorizes the Congress to admit new states into the United States. The only caveat was that if new states are carved out of existing states, it must come with the consent of the people in those existing states. That makes sense. And this is an important limitation, since the Democrats have proposed breaking up California into three separate states, in addition to adding D.C. and Puerto Rico. The proposed map of California, North California, and South California is an act of political gerrymandering at the highest level. In fact, a petition to do this is led by venture capitalist Tim Draper, who's already gathered enough signatures to appear on the November ballot in California. If the measure is approved by voters, the governor would forward the notice of state approval to Congress, which would then vote to ratify the creation of the new three-state structure. Of course, the president would have to sign this. Folks, politics is a game of raw power, and neither side wants to unilaterally disarm. Negotiating compromises and stepping back from the brink, unfortunately, is not a skill our federal leaders currently possess. Then there's the real possibility that, in a close election, neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump would concede defeat and use their armies of lawyers to challenge the millions of new universal mail-in ballots that were authorized by many states due to the COVID restrictions. The 20th Amendment to the Constitution stipulates that the term of the previous president ends and the term of the new president begins on January 20th. It stipulates the same for members of Congress on January 3rd. Further, the amendment specifies, Congress may by law provide for the case wherein neither a president-elect nor a vice president-elect shall have qualified, declaring who shall then act as president or the manner in which one who is to act shall be selected, and such persons shall act accordingly until a president or vice president shall have been qualified. All of this means that the House of Representatives could select the next president. If the Democrats hold the House in November, that could be Nancy Pelosi or anyone else they choose. Add this to the real possibility of sustained civil unrest between November 3rd, 2020 and January 20th, 2021, and we have the potential for a serious constitutional crisis starting in six weeks. If you think this is far-fetched, you're not paying attention. Our founders knew that our republic was a fragile thing, would take lots of care and feeding. That's why they designed checks and balances to slow things down and make it hard for tyranny to take hold. The Supreme Court is a critical part of those checks and balances, and it's highly likely that it's going to be called upon to adjudicate issues in the upcoming election. Sure, Justice Ginsburg knew this, and she unfortunately went to her grave not knowing the outcome. I don't know how this will all turn out, but I do know that regardless of who is elected, we're careening towards a more uncertain future than any time in the last 75 years. A republic, if you can keep it, was Ben Franklin's response to a reporter asking what he thought that first constitutional convention had created. Well, this feels like an if-you-can-keep-it moment, doesn't it? 
Now, as bad as things seem now, it is critical that we be optimistic because our history of correcting imbalances as as a nation allows us to press forward. We have an uncanny ability to sense when things are out of whack and then voting for change. That's the way America is supposed to work. We let the people decide what we want. Not experts, not judges, not power-hungry politicians. Us. I'm an optimistic long run. I was a great man who once said that the true symbol of the United States is not the bald eagle. It is the pendulum. And when the pendulum swings too far in one direction, it will go back. Well, that's our show today. And folks, get out there and vote. It's the most basic form of expression we have as citizens in a democracy. And if we ignore it, there's no shortage of charlatans out there happy to step into the vacuum and steal your power. So remember, united we stand, divided we fall, each one for the other, and all for all. 